Uh, we're so thankful that you're connecting with us wherever you are today for worship. Uh, I invite you to pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we um, are fed by it, that we're changed by it, we're, we're challenged by it. We pray today, Lord, for your spirit to speak to us through your word. Help us to um, listen well, to have open ears, open minds, open hearts, and to, um, uh, Lord, have the courage to, to change things that you might want us to change in our lives. So we pray for your blessing on the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. During this current pandemic, I don't know if you've had the same experience as me, but I've heard more um, said about the Spanish flu uh, epidemic that the world suffered back in 1918 and 1919 than I've ever heard before. Um, with that flu causing more than a half a million deaths in the U.S. and an estimated 50 million deaths worldwide, it was a major disaster in our world's history. Around the same time, on January 15, 1919, a much smaller disaster occurred. This one claimed the lives of 21 people in the north end of Boston. It was called the Great Boston Molasses Flood. When I think of molasses, I think of delicious things like shoe fly pie or gingerbread. But molasses is much more than a sweet thing with which to bake. For 300 years, the molasses trade was a major industry in our country, and it was an integral part of the <clears throat> economics of New England. And to our shame, it was at the heart of the beginnings of the enslavement of Africans in the West Indies and our country. In the early 1900s and earlier, molasses was used as a sweetener, yes, in cooking and baking, and it was distilled to make rum as it still is today. But it was also distilled to make industrial alcohol, which at that time was used in the production of ammunition. This was especially the case during World War I. In 1915, the United States Industrial Alcohol Company erected a tank in the north end of Boston along the waterfront in a congested commercial neighborhood. This tank was made from steel plates that were riveted together painted gray, built on a concrete base. It stood 50 feet high and 90 feet in diameter. 90 feet is about the width of our fenced-in parking lot across from our sanctuary doors, if that helps you to picture what 90 feet is. It was a tank that was built to hold 2.3 million gallons of molasses, 2,300,000 gallons of molasses is estimated to weigh 26 million pounds. That's 13,000 tons, and would have been the equivalent of the weight of 130 train locomotive engines at that time. The tank, which would, had been in use for four years and was partially filled with molasses on January 14, 1919, became filled to capacity that day when a ship offloaded 700,000 gallons of molasses. So the tank held 2.3 million gallons of molasses. Shortly after noon, on the following day, with people all around the area, tragically, the tank collapsed. The belief is that it was affected by both the pressure caused by the weight of the molasses, the 26 million pounds, and also from the 
fermenting, boiling-like reaction that occurred when the warm molasses from the ship was added to the cold molasses in the tank. The collapse caused a 15-foot wave of molasses to travel down Commercial Street, Boston, to the harbor at approximately 35 miles per hour, destroying whatever homes, buildings, and lives were in its path. The weight of the molasses and the chemical reaction were not the only causes of this disaster, though. The building process of the tank was questionable from the beginning, with no set safety standards and no inspections. Shortly after this, as a matter of fact, the Boston Building Department began requiring that all calculations of engineers and architects be filed with plans and that stamped drawings be signed. That's a practice that became standard across the country. Most significantly in this disaster, throughout the four years that the molasses tank sat on Commercial Street, the tank leaked. At each seam where the steel plates had been riveted together, molasses seeped out of the tank. The leaking was so prevalent that children daily um, snuck in around the tank and dipped sticks into the molasses on the ground for a sweet treat. And they held tin cans along the seams to collect the molasses to take home for their family's use. In addition to the persistent leaking, rumbling sounds could be heard from within the tank. Employees of the company who saw the leaking and heard the rumbling, as well as many other workers throughout the community, like the firefighters in the building next door, they regularly shared their fears about the tank collapsing with the management and with one another. But rather than have the tank inspected, the management dealt with complaints primarily by having the tank repainted a shade of brown, making it much harder to detect from a distance the continual leaking of molasses. But as we all know, covering over a problem and living in denial doesn't make a problem go away. The contents of that massive tank were extremely valuable, though, though we don't necessarily think of molasses in that way today. One would think that such a valuable asset would have been better cared for, both in the building process of the tank and in its ongoing maintenance. Most of us can hear these kind of details and be aghast at the errors that the company's management made with the tank which held such a significant commodity. Yet how often do you and I behave just like the U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company? Do we share a similar kind of recklessness as we make decisions that affect our bodies? Decisions about eating, about drinking, about resting, about exercise, about pleasing our appetites and addictions, about our sexual lives? And do we similarly assume indestructibility and ignore warning signs and knowledge in caring for our bodies? We've been talking in recent weeks about God calling us to be stewards, to be managers. <clears throat> and in these weeks, we've considered that our call to steward includes our financial resources, our hospitality resources like our homes, our spiritual gifts. It includes one another, creation, those under our influence like our children. 
Today, we're thinking together about God calling us to steward our bodies. So I'm going to be honest right up front. I'm not speaking today out of a victorious life of managing my body as well as I can to the glory of God. I'm a fellow struggler on this journey, and this is an aspect of stewardship which I'm continuing to learn and grow in myself. We're going to be looking at a number of scriptures together throughout this message, but the primary text for us that I'd like to keep coming back to today is simply one phrase from 2 Corinthians 4-7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Clay is first mentioned in the creation account in Genesis 2. We're told that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. The Bible contains many references to God as the potter and people as the clay. Isaiah 64, 8, for instance, says, Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Psalm 139 and verses 13 and 14 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that full well. The biblical image is quite clear. Each of us is made by God, designed by him, created by him, fashioned by him, shaped by him. That's what a potter does. On this basis alone, our bodies have great value and should be appreciated and treated as the handiwork of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The jars of clay or earthen vessels, as some translations say, that Paul is talking about are our bodies, formed as the handiwork of God himself, and the treasure within them is Jesus Christ and the ministry of his gospel. In our society, having a perfect body is a high aspiration. It's hard to appreciate God's handiwork when we wish our bodies looked differently, isn't it? When I was in high school, my favorite cartoon character was a man named Ziggy. This is uh, Ziggy. Maybe if, if you were living back then, you might remember him. One of my favorite cartoons was one in which he was lying on a couch in his therapist's office, and he says, I wasn't allowed to pick my nose when I was a kid, dot, dot, dot. But if I could have, I would have picked a smaller one two exclamation points. I can relate to Ziggy about my nose and about other parts of my body as well. I would imagine we all have our lists of things about our bodies that we would have done differently if we were doing the fashioning. As we look around us at any place, any day, do we typically see perfect bodies? Nothing against most of us, but of course not. 21st century American advertisements weren't the model that God used when he fashioned us. We have this treasure in jars of clay. God has designed and made our bodies, and the first step in becoming better stewards or managers of what he's made is seeing our bodies as a gift formed by his hands and appreciating how he has made each one of us. I had a good lesson in this years ago when I was praying at bedtime with our younger son, Corey, one night. 
when Corey prayed it as a child, he typically thanked God for one thing after another, which in itself is a good lesson. He thought concretely, not abstractly. So as he prayed, he often looked around. And whatever he saw, that's what he thanked God for. So on this one particular night, which I fondly remember, Corey thanked God for the many different parts of his body that he could see, one after another after another. He didn't wonder whether or not his hands or his feet or his eyes or his belly were good enough or cute enough to others. He thanked God for each part with true appreciation for them. And as he did so, deep appreciation welled up in me also as I marveled at the work of God's creativity. I want that kind of deep appreciation in my life as a steward of the body that God made for me. We have this treasure in jars of clay. As good stewards, we should not only appreciate God's handiwork, but we should also treat these clay jars with great care. At the time that this scripture was written, earthenware vessels were plentiful in that part of the world. They were used as containers to hold water, to hold food. The common lamp at that time was also a clay vessel. It was composed of a clay pitcher or a jar containing olive oil and a floating wick. Sometimes the clay pots were used to hold things of greater worth, such as money or jewels or even parchments. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in such containers. All of these pottery vessels were easy to purchase and broke just as easily. In fact, broken shards of these pottery pieces are plentiful among ancient ruins today. Though we often act as if we're indestructible, that nothing can happen to us, there are times in life when we're stopped dead in our tracks and reminded of our fragility. This COVID-19 season has been one of those times for so many people. In just a couple of months, I'll celebrate the fifth anniversary of hearing my doctor tell me that I had an aggressive form of breast cancer followed by my bilateral mastectomy a couple weeks later. A life-altering medical diagnosis of any kind is a stark reminder that we have this treasure in fragile jars of clay. If you have a piece of pottery that has value, do you throw it and bang it around? No, you treat it gently, carefully, gingerly so that it won't break. Craig's parents moved to Florida a number of years ago, and when they did, they gave us many of their home's decorations, whether we wanted them or not, including a small clay vase from the Midwest. It, it wasn't something that I was attached to. Um, it wouldn't have bothered me if it had fallen and broken or if one of our boys had accidentally um, smashed it in their playful antics around our house. Then a year or so ago, Craig's mom sent us all sorts of information about the vase, explaining its worth. Suddenly, we treat that vase differently than we initially did. We're much more careful with it now, now that we know its value. How much value do our bodies have? Paul's answer in 1 Corinthians 6 is clear. 
Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? God has chosen to make himself at home in our bodies. Not only that, Paul goes on to say, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. The price to God was the body and blood of his own son. So not only are we fashioned by God, but God also multiplied the value of his handiwork by redeeming us through Christ and by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Our bodies are valuable beyond measure. Therefore, Paul goes on, honor God with your body. Don't just bang it around. In the preceding verses, Paul addressed a specific issue in the Corinthian church. It seemed that some believers were taking the view that the freedom we have in Christ meant that anything goes, including uniting oneself with a prostitute. Corinth was in Greece, and in Greek philosophy, there was a depreciation of the body. There was a dualism between the body and the soul. The soul was recognized as good and of God, but the body was considered bad and not of God. The body was viewed as the jail that imprisoned the spirit. <clears throat> this way of thinking affected behavior in two different ways. Some people decided that the body needed to be punished, and so they denied uh, practically all of its appetites. But the more popular reaction was not to neglect the body, but to indulge its every appetite with the sense that what one did in one's body had nothing to do with the soul. Perhaps that's not too far from philosophies that influence us today. Paul reminded the Corinthians that though there's freedom in Christ, not everything is beneficial either to us or to others. He reminded them that we should not be mastered by anything, and he reminded them that the body is for the Lord. The overarching principle that Paul sets forth comes at the end of the passage in chapter 6, verse 20, that we are to honor God with our bodies. With this principle in mind, perhaps you can think of many more areas of application in addition to the one that Paul specifically addresses here that likely doesn't apply to most of us. One of the ways we honor the Lord with our bodies, both for ourselves and our families, can be in our commitment to eating healthy foods and drinking plenty of water. And it can be seen as well in our commitment to ensure that those with fewer resources, both here and around the world, also have access to healthy foods and to clean water. Kids, we honor God with our bodies when we care for the only brain that we'll ever have. Think about that for a minute. The only brain that we'll ever have and commit to wearing a helmet when riding a bicycle or perhaps for adults a motorcycle. We honor the Lord with our bodies when we walk, when we run, when we exercise. We obey and honor God when we make sure that we get adequate and regular rest. We honor God in our commitment not to abuse our bodies with alcohol or other drugs. We honor the Lord in our bodies when we commit to sexual relations in marriage only. We honor God in our bodies by our commitment to preventative medical care, again, both for ourselves and our families, but also for others with fewer resources than us. 
We honor God in our commitment to avoid a pace of life that creates a stress that strains the heart and causes disease. And the list could go on and on. And the bottom line here is that if we're good stewards and God is to be honored and glorified in our bodies, we must treat them with care. Lastly, as Paul points out in Romans 12, 1, our bodies are to be offered and presented to God as a living sacrifice. Paul expected the believers to hand over their bodies to God in the same way that the people of Israel presented their offerings to the Lord. There were two main kinds of offerings that the Israelites presented. First, the offerings that led to reconciliation, like the burnt offerings, which were to cover the sins of the people. This is the offering that Christ made in our behalf. And second, there were the offerings that were an expression of celebration after reconciliation had been accomplished. The second one is the kind of offering that we're to make to the Lord with our bodies. Earlier in Romans 5, Paul states, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then a few verses later, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our reconciliation with God has been accomplished, praise God. So what's left for us to do? What's left for us is to celebrate our redemption with an offering of our bodies to him. And we make this offering or sacrifice by living holy lives, by getting rid of any kind of impurity. You and I, when committed to the Lord, show in the lives that we live in the body the genuineness of our commitment. In 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, Paul tells us, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble or dishonorable. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Beth Moore, popular Bible study teacher and author, speaker, tells a story of a good work that God called her to do one day, basically with just her body, which was useful to the master. She said, April 20th, 2005, at the airport in Knoxville, waiting to board the plane, I had the Bible on my lap and was very intent upon what I was doing. I tried to keep from staring, but he was such a strange sight. Humped over in a wheelchair, he was skin and bones, dressed in clothes that obviously fit when he was at least 20 pounds heavier. His knees protruded from his trousers and his shoulders looked like the coat hanger was still in his shirt. His hands looked like tangled masses of veins and bones. The strangest part of him was his hair and nails. Stringy gray hair hung well over his shoulders and down part of his back. His fingernails were long, clean, but strangely out of place on an old man. I looked down at my Bible as fast as I could, discomfort burning my face, she said. As I tried to imagine what his story might have been, I found myself wondering if I just had a Howard Hughes sighting. Then I remembered that he was dead, so this man in the airport, an impersonator maybe? Was a camera on us somewhere? There I sat, 
trying to concentrate on the word to keep from being concerned about a thin slice of humanity served on a wheelchair only a few seats from me. All the while, my heart was growing more and more overwhelmed with a feeling for him. Let's admit it, curiosity is a heat more comfortable than true concern, she said, and suddenly I was awash with aching emotion for this bizarre-looking old man. I had walked with God long enough to see the handwriting on the wall. I've learned that when I begin to feel what God feels, something so contrary to my natural feelings, something dramatic is bound to happen, and it may be embarrassing. I immediately began to resist because I could feel God working on my spirit, and I started arguing with God in my mind. Oh, no, God, please, no. I looked up at the ceiling as if I could stare straight through it into heaven and said, don't make me witness to this man, not right here and now, please. I'll do anything. Put me on the same plane, but don't make me get up here and witness to this man in front of this gawking audience, please, Lord. There I sat in the blue vinyl chair begging his highness, please don't make me witness to this man. Not now. I'll do it on the plane. And then I heard it. I don't want you to witness to him. I want you to brush his hair. The words were so clear, my heart leapt into my throat and my thoughts spun like a top. Do I witness to the man or brush his hair? No brainer. I looked straight back up at the ceiling and said, God, as I live and breathe, I want you to know I'm ready to witness to this man. I'm on this, Lord. I'm your girl. You've never seen a woman witness to a man faster in your life. What difference does it make if his hair is a mess if he's not redeemed? I'm going to witness to this man, Lord. Again, as clearly as I've ever heard an audible word, God seemed to write this statement across the wall of my mind. That's not what I said, Beth. I don't want you to witness to him. I want you to go brush his hair. I looked up at God and quipped, I don't have a hairbrush. It's in my suitcase on the plane. How am I supposed to brush his hair without a hairbrush? God was so insistent that I almost involuntarily began to walk toward him as these thoughts came to me from God's word. I will thoroughly furnish you unto all good works, 2 Timothy 3.17. I stumbled over to the wheelchair. Even as I re retell this story, she wrote, my pulse quickens and I feel those same butterflies. I knelt down in front of the man and asked as demurely as possible, sir, may I have the pleasure of brushing your hair? He looked back at me and said, what did you say? May I have the pleasure of brushing your hair? To which he responded in volume 10, little lady, if you expect me to hear you, you're going to have to talk louder than that. At this point, I took a deep breath and blurted out, Sir, may I have the pleasure of brushing your hair? At which point, every eye in the place darted right at me. I was the only thing in the room looking more peculiar than Mr. Longlocks. Face crimson and forehead breaking out in a sweat, I watched him look up at me with absolute shock on his face and say, If you really want to. Are you kidding? Of course I didn't want to. But God didn't seem interested in my personal preference right about then. He pressed on my heart until I could utter the words, yes, sir, I would be pleased. But I have one little problem. I don't have a hairbrush. 
I have one in my bag, he responded. So I went around to the back of that wheelchair and I got on my hands and knees and unzipped the stranger's old carry-on, hardly believing what I was doing. I stood up and started brushing the old man's hair. It was perfectly clean, but it was tangled and matted. I don't do many things well, but I must admit I've had a notable experience untangling knotted hair, mothering two little girls. I began brushing at the very bottom of the strands, remembering to take my time not to pull. A miraculous thing happened to me as I started brushing that old man's hair. Everybody else in the room disappeared. There was no one alive for those moments except the old man and me. I brushed and I brushed and I brushed until every tangle was out of that hair. I know this sounds so strange, but I've never felt that kind of love for another soul in my entire life. I believe with all my heart for, that, for those few minutes, I felt a portion of the very love of God, that he had overtaken my heart for a little while, like someone renting a room and making him at, himself at home for a short while. The emotions were so strong and so pure that I knew they had to be God's. His hair was finally as soft and smooth as an infant's. I slipped the brush back in the bag and I went around the chair to face him. I got back down on my knees, put my hands on his knees and said, sir, do you know Jesus? He said, yes, I do. Well, that figures, I thought. He explained, I've known him since I married my bride. She wouldn't marry me until I got to know the Savior. You see, the problem is I haven't seen my bride in months. I've had open heart surgery, and she's been too ill to come see me. I was sitting here thinking to myself, what a mess I must be for my bride. Only God knows how often he allows us to be part of a divine moment when we are completely unaware of the significance. This, on the other hand, was one of those rare encounters when I knew God had intervened in details only he could have known. It was a God moment, and I'll never forget it. Our time came to board, and we were not on the same plane. I was deeply ashamed of how I'd acted earlier and would have been so proud to have accompanied this man on that aircraft. I still had a few minutes, and as I gathered my things to board, the airline hostess returned from the corridor, tears streaming down her cheeks. She said, that old man sitting on the plane is sobbing. Why did you do that? What made you do that? I said, do you know Jesus? He can be the bossiest thing. I learned something about God that day, she said. He knows if you're exhausted, you're hungry. He knows if you're hurting or feeling rejected. He knows if you're sick or drowning under a wave of temptation. Or he knows if you just need your hair brushed. He sees you as an individual. Tell him your need. And she went on, I got on my own flight, sobs choking my throat, wondering how many opportunities just like that one had I missed along the way all because I didn't want people to think I was strange. God didn't send me to that old man. He sent that old man to me. Life shouldn't be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely, she said, in a pretty and well-preserved body. 
but rather to skid in broadside, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly shouting, wow, what a ride. Thank you, Lord. I recently read an inspiring testimony from a woman who was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer and who died a couple years later. This is what she wrote. She said, early after my diagnosis, I also memorized and clung often to question one from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is an important document of the Reformation written in 1563. It was a series of questions. So question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? And then she said, part of it goes like this. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully paid for all my sins, delivered me from all the power of the devil and preserves me so that without the will of my heavenly father, not one hair can fall from my head. I did quickly realize, she said, that my theology was way more important than any diagnosis. What I learn in my Bible is the truth. So if my doctor says you only have this long to live, she doesn't know for sure. Only God knows. He planned the day of my birth and the day of my death, and he wants me to live the days in between fully. And he wants me to live the days in between fully. Useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. God calls us to be stewards of our bodies. First, not to disdain them, but to appreciate them because he's made them. Two, not to mistreat them, but to take good care of them because he has redeemed them and they are his temple. And then three, not to give in to the sinful nature, but by the power of the Holy Spirit within us to live holy lives and offer our bodies back to him for his service. You and I owe the Lord no less. Amen. <laughs>